This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Good afternoon. I want to start by saying a few things the most important of which is an apology to the Clark family. Back in March, the Sacramento District Attorney announced a surprise press conference for noon on a Saturday. We were all kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, a rainy Saturday. Laurel Rosenhall, a reporter at Cal Matters, she'd been waiting for this moment for weeks. There is no question that the loss of life, no matter what the circumstances are, is always somber and very serious. The DA was calling everyone in to announce whether she would be prosecuting the officers who killed Stefan Clark. 22-year-old Clark had been shot multiple times by the police in his grandmother's backyard. He was black. He was unarmed. You know, she had this PowerPoint with embedded videos. Um, she had this enormous binder on her kind of podium that she was referring to. She was pacing around the room the way you could imagine a prosecutor pacing around a courtroom. It seems like she was litigating it. Oh, she spent basically an hour before she even announced her decision describing all of the circumstances and the facts as the district attorney's office determined them. Was there a moment where you were like, I know where this is going? Yeah. <laughs> this moment, it was when the DA started talking about whether the police could have honestly and reasonably believed they were in danger. Did the officers have an honest and reasonable belief that they needed to defend themselves? Laurel heard those words and was like, here we go again. Pretty much. I mean, it just comes up in case after case after case. She's talking about the reasonable standard. The idea that a reasonable officer would have felt threatened, justifying the use of deadly force. It's why the DA determined this shooting was a tragedy, but not a crime. And as a result, we will not charge these officers with any criminal liability related to the shooting death and the use of force on Stefan Clark. Over the past few years, police shooting victims have become household names. Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, and Stefan Clark. The police officers involved in their deaths have never been found guilty of a crime. Sometimes, like in Clark's case, the police have avoided prosecution altogether. And for the last few months, Laurel has been trying to get past this numbing familiarity, figure out if California can change the odds. What I've learned so far is that what the police see as this, you know, critical legal protection, a lot of activists see as a blank check for them to shoot people. And that's exactly the tension that is being hammered out in the California legislature this year. The thing is, Stefan Clark's death kicked off a legislative battle about what's reasonable when it comes to the police's use of force. Today on the show, Laurel Rosenhall is going to take us inside that battle 
and talk about whether changing just a couple of words in the law books could prevent what happened to Clark from happening again. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last March, when Stefan Clark was killed, it sparked an outpouring of protests around the country, but especially in his hometown. The simple facts of the case were just so shocking. Clark was unarmed, holding a cell phone, shot in his own grandparents' backyard. The thing that's been really interesting is that because he was killed in Sacramento, in a backyard that's about 10 miles away from the state capitol, it became so easy for his family members and their friends and their pastors and the activists in their community to, you know, show up in the capitol and hold protests on the steps of the state capitol, it really made it capture the attention of the state legislature in a way that earlier police shootings hadn't done. Is that what they're doing? They're literally showing up at the state capitol and saying, I'm here again to talk to you about this issue. They are. And they're definitely have become sort of hooked in with a larger community of activists. And we're frankly seeing a movement of families around the state who have lost loved ones to police um, who are showing up now as part of this kind of grassroots lobbying core. Describe some of the ideas that these protesters and families have for ways to fix this problem. The legislation that the ACLU is behind would change the standard for when a shooting is justified. Instead of being only when it's reasonable, it would be when it's necessary. The battle here, it's really over those two words, reasonable and necessary. Reasonable is a standard that's set by Supreme Court precedent. It says police can use deadly force when it is reasonable to do so. What activists are saying is that the language needs to change to necessary that police should only be able to use deadly force if there isn't another option. The first time activists proposed a bill with this linguistic change was right after Stefan Clark's death last spring. So the bill last year was introduced right after Stefan Clark was killed, like within a couple weeks of his killing. I'm here to present AB 931, the Police Accountability and Community Protection Act. This bill seeks to change California's legal standard for when police can use deadly force to match best practices already in place at some departments. The ACLU and a bunch of other community grassroots groups had, um, you know, they had brought in people from around the state who gave testimony about what it was like to lose someone from your family to be killed by the police. My name is Teresa Smith. I'm the mother of Cesar Cruz, who was shot and killed, shot 15 times in the back by five police officers in Anaheim. And I'm here today supporting this bill instead of celebrating his birthday today. Please pass this bill. 
there's more people than you think who are now living in the aftermath of this because it, their cousin or uncle or father or brother or husband or boyfriend have experienced this. And it is very powerful to see the kind of ripple effect that it's having in communities. I imagine that the police showed up, too, to defend themselves. Oh, yeah. Once you add necessary and no reasonable alternatives, it becomes a hindsight second-guessing game that puts not only the officers at danger, but puts the public at danger as well. You know, they didn't do anything like bring in the widows of a fallen officer or anything like that. But their argument last year largely was that changing this standard would put officers' lives at risk. And so they, you know, really painted this picture of the extreme danger that law enforcement would be placed in if they lost this protection of this reasonable standard. And they managed to kind of kill this bill last year, right? Yes. There was such intense opposition and the two sides were, you know, so opposed to each other. There was really no middle ground. And the legislature, they just, it was too hot. They didn't want to touch it. So rather than put it up for a vote and put all the politicians in a really difficult spot about, you know, how to decide. They basically just shelved it. And the leaders of the legislature told the two sides, the law enforcement side and the community activists, ACLU side, to, you know, start talking and see if they could hammer out some kind of compromise or negotiation of some kind. Could there be a solution that they could both get behind? So for several months over the fall and winter, they were negotiating and they were trying to see if they could agree on something and they didn't. And so that's how we got to the point where each side for this year introduced their own bill. So what does that look like? How are the police getting involved? Well, this year they came back with a bill that they're pushing for. And so that kind of changes the political and strategic dynamics as this fight plays out on the state capitol because in the past it's always been like activists and community members want something and the police don't and they just try to squash it and that's the whole dynamic. But this year we have this different dynamic at play where the police have proposed their own solutions and the ACLU and community groups have proposed their own solutions And so we have sort of two different bills advancing through the Capitol that are both claiming that they'll reduce police shootings, but in very different ways. Yeah. So how do the police want to do it? If they don't want to change the reasonable officer standard, what do they want to do instead? They're focusing on training. They're talking a lot about the the need for more training for officers. They're talking about changing police department policies so that there is more specificity about when police can and can't use deadly force, so that they get trained in other tactics like de-escalating situations or using tactical repositioning so that they aren't in the line of fire, so that they have more skills for avoiding force in the first place. The police, they seem to realize that some change is going to happen and they want to be kind of part of crafting that change rather than just having something imposed on them by the legislature. They want a bill that will put the onus on them. What do activists think about that? 
so far, they're saying that the police bill doesn't go far enough. You know, no one's going to oppose more training for police, except that they just think it's not sufficient. You know, that's not a, that alone is not enough. I'm curious how you think about this, because on the one hand, the police chiefs are saying, OK, we're going to have to do something here. So in some ways, they're getting involved. They're putting themselves out there. But on the other side, they don't seem to be able to agree with the activists about what to do. So right now, that's true. And that they're sort of in the beginning of the stages of the legislative cycle, which in California runs from you know January through October. So right now, they're at the point where they're both kind of in their camps with their own proposals. And I anticipate that as this process unfolds, probably both sides are going to kind of have to move a little bit. And the question that I'm watching is kind of like who, which side ends up having to move more and do they wind up reaching something that both sides get behind or just something that each side doesn't hate as much as where they are right now. Um, Right now, I don't see a lot of common ground possible. But I think as it gets closer to the deadline for bills to have to reach the governor's desk, you know, the squeeze will be on and they'll both be trying to find something that they can live with. You know, it's interesting. We're in this time of like progressive prosecutors and progressive police chiefs. And I'm surprised that none of the law enforcement community has come forward to say they're interested in working on the bill that the activists put forward or that they're interested in talking about, you know, the idea of more tightly restricting the standards on their officers to use deadly force? Well, you know, I feel like I've actually seen them move already from where they were last year. So I feel like they are there. You know, this this reasonable standard is critically important to them. Um, and they they are definitely not expressing any interest in changing that. But they're talking about things that last year they weren't even talking about. You know, last year, all they were saying is if you make any changes, it's going to put our officers' lives at risk. And, you know, you'll have blood on your hands, politicians, because, you know, you you put our lives at risk. Now they're saying, okay, we could update some things. Okay, we could do more training. Okay, we could give our officers a clearer sense of when they should and shouldn't use deadly force. So they're moving a little bit. Now, obviously, there's some political strategy going on on their part. There's no denying that. But the fact of the matter is they seem to have acknowledged that in this state capital, it's run entirely by Democrats because Democrats have 75% of the seats they seem to realize that something is going to change and they would rather be part of making the solution than have something imposed on them that they really don't want. Have any other cities or states done what California is thinking of doing here, abolishing this reasonable officer standard? So at the statewide level, it hasn't been done, but there are cities around the country that have taken this idea and put it in their own police department policies. Seattle is held up as an example where they've had this in place for several years. Activists say that it's working well to reduce violence without putting officers at risk. 
San Francisco changed their policy much more recently, like in the last one to two years. So there's been less time to kind of evaluate the results. But the people who support this bill in the legislature that would change the reasonable standard, you know, they say the San Francisco approach does meet the requirements of their bill and the goal of their bill. And they do point to San Francisco and Seattle as kind of two key examples. Right. Like the activists, I think, say that in San Francisco, police involved shootings went down 20 percent or something since they put that law. Something like that. Yeah. But again, it has been in place for not that long. I think it's been in place for a little over a year. So there's not a huge amount of time to have kind of evaluated the impact. So for someone who's outside of California, I wonder why you think it's important to pay attention to what's happening in your state legislature this year in regards to this bill? Well, a lot of policies start in California and, you know, spread across the nation. So if this is successful in California, there probably will be other blue states that are going to face similar debates. At the same time, I think the other reason that it's interesting for the country to look at is that Despite how progressive California is and the fact that every single one of our statewide elected officials are Democrats and 75% of our legislature are Democrats, the police still have a tremendous amount of political power in the state legislature and in our kind of politics overall. And so I think it will be really interesting to watch how the police exercise that power in a political environment that is largely progressive. You know, if they're influential and stopping this bill from moving ahead, it will kind of challenge California's progressive image. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Laurel Rosenhall is a reporter at CalMatters. You can find him over at calmatters.org. She's going to be tracking these two bills as they move through the legislature all this session. And you can follow along as she does with her podcast. It's called Force of Law. The first episode just went up last week, and you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. All right, that's the show. What Next is here five days a week, breaking down the headlines or just going deep on a story we think you should know more about. If you don't already subscribe, go ahead, do that right now. And as long as you're cracking open Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. When you do that, you'll help other people find the show. And we love that. If you've already done it, thank you so much. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. So will my producers, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. Talk to you then. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.